Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by the co-founder and CEO of Zero Shoes, Stephen Sashin. Stephen and his wife, Lena Phoenix, started the company after discovering the comfort, benefits, and fun of natural movement by getting out of thick, padded, motion-controlled shoes. Stephen is the visionary and marketer for Zero Shoes. He is a master's all-American sprinter, meaning one of the fastest men over the age of 50 in the United States, and a former all-American gymnast. He was also a professional stand-up comic, cognitive psychology research, and and taught Tai Chi and Zen archery. Stephen is also the creator of Scriptware, the industry standard word processor for film and TV writers. We are pumped to have such a creative and entrepreneurial-minded guest. So, Stephen, my new friend, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, man. That guy sounds like he needs some Ritalin. (laughs) It sounds like someone who has been able to take an ADD-like personality and actually put it to good good use. So, you know, I've been lucky. I've been lucky enough that the things that I find interesting have somehow made me a living for my whole life. That's amazing. You know, I heard Tim Ferriss once talk about that, that ADD for a long time sabotaged his career until he figured out how to use it for his benefit. And then it became the actual kind of secret ingredient to what has made him successful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can work with that. I think you've done the same thing. Could be. Um, so how did, we, how did we get into Zero Shoes? I, we can touch on a lot of that other stuff as well, but I'm, I'm curious. And I'm also curious, I don't want to lead the witness. Did it have anything to do with the Born to Run book and phenomenon? Yes, kind of. Partially, definitely. So, um, uh, so let's see. Fourteen years ago, that was two thousand seven. I was forty-five. I got back into sprinting after a thirty-year break, which I do not recommend because I was getting injured constantly for the next two years. Because basically, my brain still thought I was eighteen, and my body was going, "Oh no, you are grossly mistaken, my friend." So, um, uh, and then at the two-year mark, a, a world champion runner said, "Why don't you try getting out of those?" Like I said, you said in the intro, "Get out of those big, thick, motion-controlled, padded, arch-supporting shoes—the way the things that everybody wears—and see if you learn anything from running barefoot." And the short version is, what I learned when I got my bare feet on the ground was that I had a form problem that was indetectable when I was in shoes, but could not have been more obvious when I was in bare feet. And uh-huh. more. I was able to correct it pretty effortlessly because when you're running in bare feet, doing it wrong hurts, doing it right feels good. And your brain doesn't want you to keep doing things that are painful. So it'll make adjustments as necessary. And wow. the adjustment that it made got helped me get rid of my injuries, made me faster, helped me become an all master's all-American. And I wanted that natural movement, that barefoot-like experience as much as I could have it. And I didn't want to have to argue with people about whether I was allowed to get into a restaurant barefoot, which yes, you are. Um, and <laughs> I didn't want to have to, you know, be washing my feet when I came home every day. So I made a pair of sandals based on this 10,000 year old idea, which is what footwear was for 99.95% of human history, something to protect your foot, something to hold that protection on your foot, maybe some insulation if you were living somewhere cold. Sure. And I uh, loved them. They were great. And then like 60 other runners asked me for them. It was like, you know, they told two friends and they told two friends. And one day a guy who was a barefoot running coach, um, said, if you treated the sandal making hobby that you have like a business and had a website, I could put you in a book that I'm writing. So I have, I've been an internet marketer since like 92. So I built hundreds of websites. I rush home. I pitch this brilliant opportunity to my wife who tells me I'm a complete moron and it's a horrible idea. Won't make any money distraction from what we need to do to pay the rent. And I said, all right, all right, I won't do it. 
So after she built, went to bed, I built a website. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your uh, feedback. Yeah. I'm still building the website. <laughs> yeah. And um, the next morning she kind of growled at me and we actually were starting a search engine marketing business at that time. Cause I've been doing it since day one. And I said, it'll be a good case study. You know, maybe in three months, I'll have some really good traction in this market. And I was completely mistaken again. It took me maybe six weeks and we owned the market. And so what we thought might turn into a car payment was clearly going to be our full-time job. Not that we had any idea that it would grow to where it is now, but it was clearly not, you know, just a little side hustle uh, from day one. And here we are. So was that book that the person offered to put you in, was that Born to Run? So, yeah, so that was part of it. So in that process is when the guy who said, you know, take off your shoes, handed me a copy of Born to Run, and uh, which, if you haven't read it, is a great book, whether you're a runner or not, because it's just a really good story of a runner trying to find out how to become uninjured and run better, happier, and also just the science about natural movement. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the book really doesn't talk at all about or suggest running barefoot, but that's what people got out of it, yeah. which is an interesting kind of twist. But the other part is that Chris McDougall, the, the author, um, that book started getting more popular right after we came out. We, so we launched Zero Shoes in or, or late 2009, and the book really took off in 2010. And so I used to tease Chris that he was my unofficial marketing department. Um, everywhere he went to do a book signing, you know, people would then start searching and they would find me because of all the SEO stuff that I had done. Yeah. And then I did it. I also did a really clever guerrilla marketing thing. I would go to bookstores and find copies of the book and put our business card in the books. Let's go. And then I would send, send uh, business cards to other people so they could do the same where they lived. Brilliant. Yes. The, the, pre- the preparedness meeting the opportunity there is uh, quite amazing. So I love that book. I'm not necessarily a runner. I've been a soccer player for years and outdoor adventurous, but uh, I just was captivated by the story. Again, great storyteller. Great storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. And got me messing with my form every time I go running now. I'm trying to, I'm like, man, I probably need to like pay more attention if I'm actually going to mess with my form. But I'm like, all right, he talked about little steps right underneath you, not big, long steps, you know, not heel to toe and all this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, But what I did take from that was find the stride that feels comfortable for my body. Shouldn't feel like pounding, shouldn't feel like, you know, injury prone. Here's the thing. You go out and you watch little kids running and they have this really weird look on their face called, um, what's it called? Um, Smiling. Yeah. And they do it for fun. Now they also have perfect form. I mean, it was uh, Lane and I, we took a, our first vacation uh, in a long time, a couple of weeks ago, and we were hiking in Mesa Verde where the Pueblo people had their uh, cliff dwellings. And there was a little girl, she was maybe two and a half who was you know, running after her family and crying when she couldn't go climbing on things, which you're not allowed to do there. And I mentioned to her, her father who apologized for her crying. I said, oh no, I was just having a good time watching her run because she has perfect running form. Mm. And she just was, she would do it till she got tired then she'd stop, then she'd start again. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. And you can spot a barefoot runner from hundred yards. They're, it looks like they're having a good time. Yeah. Instead of just slogging out the miles. Man, that's so huge. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that right now, actually. But to, to preface that in a similar category, when I first, about six years ago, started taking just physical exercise more importantly again it had been just like almost a byproduct of being in sports for so long and then there was a 10-year gap of just yeah being an adult and not doing anything and being tired all the time and all that kind of stuff wait did did you hold on did you have one of those those birthdays ending in a zero right around then too yeah let's see yeah it was right around 30 right around 30 i'm 36 now it was right around that time that i was like this is it's too early i had three young kids i was like it's too early for me to be this tired 
and not feeling like up for yeah. playing, you know, and things like that. And so I remember working out and like really applying myself. And one of the, the trainers there I was talking to, he said something similar that just blew my mind, similar to running, where he said, if you don't feel better after the workout than you did coming in, you didn't do the workout right. And he's like, I see you like, you know, you're drenched on the floor and yeah. you look weary. And he's like, you're not doing it right. Like you should feel a, maybe a little soreness, maybe a little whatever, but like you should feel more energy and better leaving the gym than you came in. And it was such a big mindset shift. When I, when I got back into sprinting during that getting injured constantly phase, one day I'm like hobbling through the kitchen with torn hamstrings. And my wife says to me with genuine curiosity, are you having fun? And I said, more than you can imagine. I just don't like this injury part, but you know, in those intervening times, there's just nothing more fun. And now my version of that is I built a really nice home gym that happens to be at a spot in our house where I have to walk by it like four times a day. So I don't do a normal workout. Every time I walk by, I do a set of whatever captures my attention. That's and cool. so it's just fun to do yeah. something on one of these pieces of equipment. It, and I've gotten in better shape from doing that than doing any you know normal workout, which bores the crap out of me after two weeks. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, like, what, what place does running and or any other exercise kind of occupy in your life right now? Um, well, sadly, uh, if you want to run less, start a running shoe company. Um, it's you know, so I just don't have the time to do as much as I would like. In fact, that was really drilled home when we were on vacation because I was able to work out every day. I had the time to do it and it felt so good. Um, and again, I was just doing, you know, whatever kind of was in my mind, not some rigid workout, yeah. but I still train. I mean, I'm, I'm still a master's all American. Um, I'm going to be turning 60 in seven months. And so I'm looking forward to being in a new age group and hopefully that's going to help me at the world's next year. Uh, and so it's a very important part of my life. Somebody asked me, I was in a documentary and they said, what are you going to do when you can't run any longer? And I was just dead silent for like two minutes. And I said, that's the most depressing question anyone's ever asked me. Mm. And I, I hope that um, the answer is that I never have to find that out. I mean, I hang out with guys who are in their eighties who are still sprinting. They're not crushing the times. Sure. They're running as fast as they can for them. And they're still all Americans in their age group. And, you know, and we have so much fun. Um, so I'm, uh, it's, you know, again, I was an all-American gymnast and after I blew out my knee tumbling, I spent the next 10, 15 years looking for something to do that I enjoyed, that my body liked and that I found interesting intellectually and challenging as well. And I tried a whole bunch of things and I never occurred to me to go back into sprinting until a friend of mine came in for brunch one day and he had just won his first 5k. And I said, yeah, you know, I never, it took me until I was in my late thirties to realize I'm not a runner. I'm a sprinter. I didn't mm. realize that. Why didn't I like going out for a run? Cause I'm not a runner. And he said, you know, there's a whole master's track and field circuit, including all the sprinting events like blah, blah, what? So, you know, that really changed my life. And it's, I don't, I don't think of myself as having an identity as a something other than sprinter. I yeah. mean, yes, I'm a marketer. Yes. I'm an entrepreneur. Yes. I'm all these things, but the only one that I seem to care about is sprinter. So if you're going to run for fun, yeah. you're going to run more sprinting series of sprints than you would go out for a two hour run or something. I, I don't, I don't go out for a run on a track. I don't, I don't do, what are those things at the end of the track called turns curves? What are those called? Yeah. 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 I hear you need a GPS watch to be able to handle those. I have no <laughs> idea how they work. Um, I, I go very fast for a very short straight line. So I run the hundred meters outdoors indoors. I'm running the 50 or the 60 and I, um, uh, I enjoy the, 
the effort of it. And I, it's one of these things where you can't do it perfectly. Mm. It's intermittent reinforcement. It's just like going to Vegas. You know, you always try to do some little thing. You try to pull the knob in a little different way, push the button at the right time. Sprinting is the same way. You can never do it perfectly. And it's a very finite thing. There's only yeah. a couple of pieces. There's the start, there's the drive, there's the transition, there's you know the maximum velocity, and then there's the hold on till you get to the finish line phase. That's it. You have like four thoughts during the entire race. And I guess the best way I can put it is at the end of a race, when someone asks me how I did, my answer is, do you just want the number or can I give you the excuse along with it? Yes, yes. So do you, does it occupy the place in your life now because you, you talked about being so busy, not running as much as you want, that it's just in the training to compete phase or is there also a uh i love it mentally and so i go out even if i'm not training for an event kind of thing i'm always training for an event gotcha so, i mean you know there's an interesting thing for example with the the so the indoor season is a 50 60 50 or 60 meter indoors depending on the track outdoor season i run the 100 i don't even run the 200 i'm not good at that race um, and so the world masters track and field championships is in Finland next year. And so I'm foregoing training for the indoor season, just so I can keep training for the hundred so that I can go, to, I feel confident going to Finland. And I'm, if I'm really good, I'm, I'll probably make a quarterfinal event. I it's, it's depending on how many people show up, there's a rare possibility that I'll make a semifinal, but there's a bigger possibility that I could be in one of the two hundred four by hundred meter um, uh, relay races. Mm. So I'll be in the slower one of those if you know they need me at the end, and that's really my goal. Like I'll be at the beginning of the age group. I'll be running a good time, not a crazy good time. They're, the guys that are faster than me are insanely fast, um, but I'm fast enough that they you know might want to drag me around for a four by one, and that would be so a blast. So. Um, even during COVID, I was always training as if there was races coming up that might happen. And, and, and there's another part. Um, it's a social event. I train with my training partners who I've been working with for over 10 years. And so on any given day, one of us will say, I'm so glad you made me come out here because I really needed to. And today was a day that I thought I was going to go home. And last but not least, almost every time when I feel like, uh, screw it, I'm just going to stay home. By the time I'm done warming up and I do that first hundred, it's like, okay, I had it in me. I just didn't know it. Yeah. How important have you found it personally, not just philosophically, but for your own life to have something like that outside of your passion for the business you're building to be a part of your life? Um, that's an interesting question. In most areas of my life, I really don't care at all. And I don't have a purpose. I don't have an agenda. I don't have a mission. I don't have an anything. Uh, but when it comes to athletic activities, I'm, I need the competition. I can't just do it for the sake of doing it. Um, it I, I don't know what it is. I mean, you know what it is partly? No one's ever set a personal best in practice. Hmm. Competition just brings something out that you can't get in any other way that I find very, very satisfying. Hmm. And not about even necessarily winning, although I do win quite often, but just the doing it is, it, it's just a different everything that I find really compelling. It's like at the beginning of a race, it's pretty common. There'll be a bunch of guys there all, you know, getting really nervous and jacked and um, someone will turn to me and go, Hey, good luck. And I say, Hey, look, 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 there's no money at the end of this. You're not going to get a sponsorship or, you know, there's no big prizes. So have fun, stay healthy. And Oh, by the way, I totally want to kick your ass. <laughs> Come on. It, 
You know, because it's, it's competition for the pure competition's sake. That's we're, all. We're we're all old enough to realize that working this hard for something with so little demonstrable benefit is really stupid, and yet we want to do it. Competing like this and being this competitive is really stupid, but we're old enough to recognize that that's just part of who we are. Yeah. And so you meet other guys on the track, or I meet other guys on the track, and it's like having a secret handshake. It's like, oh, you're a moron too? Glad to meet you. And I have literally never met anybody on the track who I don't totally adore. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, to building this shoe business that yeah. your wife kind of poo-pooed on in the first idea, and then overnight within six weeks, you found out, wow, this is a real market. We are primed actually in a beautiful place in this market. Yeah. What has the journey been like for you in building the, this business around this? Take a roller coaster, throw it off a mountain and then stick it in a waterfall. And then <laughs> actually, um, that's not really true. It, it's, it's actually been surprising. This is going to sound weird. Even with all of the crazy difficult things that we've had to deal with, it's been surprisingly smooth in mm. that we never had to really, you know, do some massive pivot. We never, you know, nearly went bankrupt five times. We never had to lay off all our employees. We never had, but, you know, I mean, tons and tons and tons of challenges all along the way. But uh, when you read, if you, if you ever read the story of how we did this, it, it would be relatively, pardon me, I got hiccups. It'd be relatively boring. Um, I mean, it would be interesting. There's lots of parts, but it won't have that dramatic thing. Like if you read the Nike story of how they almost went bankrupt, you know, right. a jillion times, yep. we didn't have that. Um, again, lots and lots of challenges. One of the things I can say is the making things business is really hard. The making footwear business makes all the other things look easy. And there's just so many components to it. And especially running a digitally native company that we have, and then integrating the wholesale side it's super, super challenging for myriad reasons. Um, we had guys who met with us about seven, eight months into the business who had all been in the footwear world for about 35 years at that time. And they said, we believe in you guys and we believe in what you're doing. This natural movement idea is the most important thing in footwear and no one's doing it. And we would start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. And we um, heard that but went, well, look, we're hyper-optimistic hyper and naive, like any good entrepreneur should be, um, and simultaneously very risk-averse and attentive to all the things that could go wrong, like most entrepreneurs aren't, but should be. And so we said, so, you know, we're jumping in. We had no idea how right they were, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's flat out crazy town. Uh, and I, I, I say, here's the way I could best, I could say it best. If at some point we cash out with a gajillion dollars and someone asked me if they should try to reproduce what we did, I would say absolutely not because mm. it's irreproducible. It's, you know, the number of factors that led to us being here that are completely out of our control, total luck are so high as to be uncountable. I like to say 90% of what got us here was luck and the other 10% was also luck. And then... <laughs> Then, though, there's another 100% where 90% is uh, working our butts off, and the other 10% is hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight, despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, let's assume that there was a good bit of luck there. I think that's true for everyone's story. But let's, let's dive into what maybe we did do, you did do right. Because what's, what's curious to me is you have almost two things holding each other in tension. They're not opposites, but they're holding each other in tension. Like, 
One is the fact that this is a very difficult business, right? The You just mentioned, like, how crazy hard it is being in the footwear industry, the making of things industry, yet you also have something on the other side, which is somehow avoiding the really big pains or the really big mistakes that almost bankrupt you or whatever. Yeah. How do you think you... How do you think you all accomplish that? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I think it's mostly because we have a product that produces demonstrable, powerful benefits. Mm. So Lena says it really well. She says, there's enough shoe companies in the world. You don't need another shoe company unless your shoe company changes people's lives. And that's what we do. Using your feet naturally, getting out of things that are basically like what we call foot coffins or basically cast for your feet, um, changes people's lives. And that has been a huge, huge part of what would you know carry us along the way is that we would sell product to be, I'll say it this way. When we first got started and we were selling a do-it-yourself running sandal kit, funky little DIY project, what we would see when we were processing all the orders ourselves is the barefoot runner in the family would buy a kit. And then a week later, we'd see an order clearly for the rest of the family. Or we were walking down the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, Colorado in our funky little sandals and a pack of teenage girls ran after us and went, oh, those are sick, where do you get those? And I said, okay, we're gonna be billionaires. So, <laughs> um, so the quality of the product and the effect that the product delivered for people, I think is the number one thing that just kind of kept things going no matter what. Yeah. So you had the obvious demand there for several reasons, well, it right? It wasn't obvious. Uh, a lot of people said it wasn't, it didn't exist. A lot of people said, look, we were on Shark Tank in 2017, uh, 2000, when was that? 13. And Mark Cuban said, oh, this is just a bubble. And I'm thinking, no, you're very wrong. And wow. we've proven that he was mistaken. But uh, in fact, in the early days, 2010, 2011, the big shoe companies were trying to convince people that what we were doing was going to kill them. That yeah. if they wore our shoes or went barefoot, they'd step on hypodermic needles, they'd get Ebola, their kids wouldn't get into college, they wouldn't know how to use the number three. Uh, I mean, you know, whatever <laughs> crazy thing they would come up with. And so there was a lot of, and then Vibram, the company that made the five finger shoes, they were hit with a class action lawsuit that got spun by the big shoe companies as proof that this barefoot thing was bullshit. It was not that at all. That was not the case. That's just how they spun it because they were getting terrified that they, the big shoe companies, that they'd never be able to sell another shoe again. Because between you and me and everyone listening, the people running most of those companies, they know that what we're doing is legit. They have said to directly to a person that we know, this whole natural movement thing is totally legit. We just can't do it because it would be admitting everything we've said is a lie. Sure. So they, rather than trying to change and try and tell two conflicting stories simultaneously, they just tried to debunk or not debunk. They tried to dismiss all of this. It sure. didn't work because people would wear our product and have this experience that uh, pulled the rug out from underneath everything the big shoe companies have been saying for 50 years. Well, when, when we were setting up for this interview, I thought what I would see behind you, if I saw anything behind you, were, is more what you were describing earlier, like maybe just a random piece of leather with uh, a few straps on it. It's and, up there, there. Okay. And instead, I see what look like shoes behind you. Yeah. What is the well, major and, difference? And sandals up there. There's a couple sandals. Yes. Yeah. We got some so, sandals up there. Um, there was actually an interesting conversation I had with a guy whose family had a very large sporting goods business. And he asked me when we started developing shoes, which we came out with our first closed toed shoe here somewhere in 2016. Uh, so after, I mean, six years, basically. 
uh, he said, well, why are you making shoes? You haven't fully maxed out the sandal market. I said, our shoes are basically sandals with an upper. So we're making footwear, again, the way that it's been made since the beginning that the first human being made footwear, something to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot, and then just different applications for different reasons. So the way the brand evolved was people saying, hey, I love that do-it-yourself sandal idea, but I'm never going to make my own. So we came up with a ready-to-wear version of that sandal. Hey, that's great, but I need a trail sandal, something with a little more protection, but still gives me that barefoot movement thing. So we came up with a trail sandal. Hey, that's great, but what do I do when it's cold and I'm going to the office? So we came up with right. a casual shoe. Hey, that's cool, but what about a running shoe? So we changed the sole and made something more running friendly. Hey, that's great, but what about a trail running shoe with grippier lugs? So, we made, so everything has been evolved primarily from customers telling us what they need next. Same basic idea, minor variations on a theme or sometimes what seems like a major variation on a theme hold on reaching behind me you know this is a fully waterproof snow boot which seems like how can that be the same except that it weighs half as much as other snow boots you can roll it up into a ball Um, it's fully insulated fully waterproof and lets your foot continue to move naturally so we have a guy working for us who made boots for a massive boot company for years and he tried on that uh, shoe as well as a hiking boot that we made. He goes, I've never worn anything like these in my life. I mean, this is this is amazing. So again, it all has that natural movement DNA, that lightweight DNA. Uh, so lightweight, in fact, we've had customers email saying, I went to bed still wearing my zero shoes because I forgot I had them on. And <laughs> um, and I mean, maybe they were passed out drunk. I have no idea. But regardless, shoes, bed. So everything is based on that natural movement DNA. Um, which we'll never deviate from, and then just giving people the extra function they need for certain things they want to do. Were there any major design challenges in trying to take it from something like just a strap-on sandal to an actual closed-toed shoe that still kept the functionality you wanted? Well, um, there were two components. One, even when we just made our our do-it-yourself sandals and we decided to make our own rubber because we wanted certain performance characteristics, we approached the rubber manufacturer and said, here's what we want it to do. And he said, but that's not how they make outsoles for shoes. And we went, yeah, no joke. That's why we're doing it this way. So similarly, when you aren't making a shoe with the traditional structure, outsole, rubber layer, midsole of foam, whole bunch of pieces that you can just you know, hide mistakes in, uh, it, took, it takes us years to get a factory to understand what we're doing well enough to do it mostly right. <laughs> and then mm. we still have to look over their shoulder to make sure they don't screw it up. So yeah, the entire manufacturing process for what we're doing has a lot of strange little things that a uh, big shoe company doesn't have to worry about and makes all the difference for what we're doing. And it's taken us years. Here's a classic story, actually. The first time we had a pair of sandal, uh, just the outsoles for sandals made for a do-it-yourself kit. Instead, because previously we were taking big sheets of rubber cutting them into small sheets of rubber, big things of cord, cutting into small things of cord, instructions on how to make a sandal. When we made our own outsole material that was in the shape of a foot already with the ankle holes already punched out so it's easier to make, uh, we would get, we got product back where the left sandal and the right sandal weighed different amounts, noticeably Hmm. different, where the larger ones that should have more material somehow weighed less than the smaller ones. And we said to the manufacturer, um, you got to fix this. And they said, well, we don't want to. We said, well, but it's, this is our whole product. This is not something that we're gluing onto something else where we can hide the mistakes. This is the product. And they said, well, take it or leave it. We said, well, what do we, I mean, we'd like to fix it. They said, how much did it cost for you to deal with it? And I said, quite, um, 
with a lot of attitude, almost $5,000 this year. Cause I think that was about 10% of what we made that year. Yeah. And he said, well, to fix it is going to cost you $50,000. We said, Oh, huh. So just getting people to do something different than the, what, what they've just been doing by rote, if you will, yeah. was very challenging. It became less and less so the bigger we got, obviously, because people wanted our business at that point. But even then, still challenging, never ending challenge. We send designs over, we get the product back and go, let's see how they screwed it up this time. And we cut yeah. it apart and find out all these changes they made without our approval or even, even asking us that we need to correct them because that's how normal shoes are made and we're making things very differently. Yeah. So uh, what's interesting to me is you have the, the challenges that come with innovating on the production side, on the manufacturing side, but you're also innovating in a market, meaning the end oh, customer yeah. is, is changing the way they've thought about running or shoes or whatever. <laughs> what, what was the most challenging part about building a business like that for uh, the customer side? Yeah. The most challenging thing is human brains. Would you like me to elaborate? Please. Please. <laughs> so one of the things about humans, and I will include you and I in that category. Why not? Yeah. As far as I know. Uh, we haven't checked. <laughs> is we're wired to make decisions quickly and latch onto them. Because mm -hmm. when we were living in places where, you know, a blade of grass moving in the wrong direction was either lunch or proof that we were about to be lunch. We had to make a quick decision and re respond to it. And hopefully we made the right one and we lived and passed on our genes to other people who looked like us. And so that's the way we still work. We latch onto beliefs. They become very central to our identity. And there's an interesting thing that has been researched over and over and over that if you tell someone a fact that contradicts what they believe, they will not go, oh, okay, and change their mind. They, in fact, will latch onto their belief even more strongly, except yeah. under very rare circumstances. And of course, we see this every day in the news, but that's a whole other story. So we've had 50 years of what I call big shoe telling people that you need arch support and padding and cushioning and motion control. And for some reason, pointy toe boxes, which makes no sense. They don't even tell you why, but like, why would you squeeze your toes together? I, I, I mean, if you're going to drop and do push-ups, you don't squeeze your fingers together. You spread them out. Well, yep. same thing about your toes. If you want strong, healthy feet and have that strength radiate up your body, your toes need to be able to not be squeezed together. So anyway, but we've had 50 years of telling people that your body is amazing, except those feet, those things suck. You need to protect them. You need to support them. You need to do everything other than let them do what they're built to do. You have a quarter of the bones of your joints, a quarter of the bones and joints of your whole body in your feet and ankles. They're supposed to bend and flex and move. So that gives you the ability to have mobility and agility and balance. You have more nerve endings in your soul than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. That's to send information to first your spinal cord for reflexes and then your brain. So your brain knows how to balance and move your whole body. If you don't let your feet bend and flex and move and feel, all that function tries unsuccessfully to move up into your upstream joints, ankle, knee, hip, and back, which aren't wired for that. Like, mm. you know, your knee is designed to mostly go in one direction, not all those little directions that your feet are supposed to go. And if you don't feel anything, then you're making yourself kind of numb and dumb. So, but we've had two generations of people believing I need art support, I need motion control, I need padding, I need all these other things, because that's what the shoe companies have told us, and they didn't have any other experience. So you can't just tell people, hey, you're wrong. Doesn't do any good. They latch onto it. What you can do, the only thing you can do, is help people 
discover that their own experience undermines what they believe, that their own experience tells them something that's not the marketing that they've been hearing from big shoe companies who have fundamentally, uh, how do I want to put this, been lying for 50 years. Mm. And because I already mentioned that actually. And so the way you do that is by thing is by doing things like, you know, why are your toes being squeezed into pointed toe boxes? I mean, if that's the shape of your foot, guess what? It's not supposed to be. Your feet are supposed to bend and flex and move. Why, you know, when you were a kid, remember being a kid and taking off your shoes and going out on a warm summer day and you feel the grass between your toes oh, or yeah. the water or the sand and you would just play and have fun. And at the end of the day, you weren't worried that your feet hurt because they didn't. Yep. Well, that's not because you were a kid. That's because you were using your feet naturally. That's what they're designed to do. You know, you know, if you put your arm in a cast and su quote, support the joint of your elbow, the muscles around that elbow get weaker over time. They don't come yep. out magically stronger when you take the cast off. Guess what? If you don't let all those bones and joints in your foot move, same thing happens. And ask, let me ask you, when is weaker better than stronger? It's not. And so stronger is better than weaker. How do you get stronger? This is not rocket science. It's used or lose it. Mm. I mean, if you watch a baby learning how to walk, you can tell that it's working the problem. It's trying to get its feet to move correctly. It's trying to find the way to use them. You can see that its brain is trying to figure out how to balance this you know, top heavy thing. It's working the problem. Would you take a baby and put something on its feet that wouldn't let its foot move or wouldn't give it any sensation that its brain could work with or would it elevate its heel so it messes with its posture? Of course you wouldn't. Well, then why are you doing it to you yeah. when you put on a shoe that doesn't let it move or feel or alters your posture with an elevated heel? So breaking the trance that these big shoe companies have created with billions and billions of dollars of advertising, that's our number one challenge. Now, here's the good news. It's effortless if we get people to have the experience. Once people try these on, effortless. There's this very common uh, chain of events that happens when people put on our shoes. They go, oh my God, I love the wide toe box. My toes are spreading. Hey, it doesn't even feel like I'm wearing anything. They're so light. Hey, I'm walking around in these rocks outside your office and I'm getting a foot massage. Or my favorite version of that, a guy walking around the office was saying, I can feel the crack in the sidewalk. I mean, I recognize this crack. I recognize this thing I'm stepping on, which was a big deal because he was blind. Oh, wow. And so he was saying it's like having another sense suddenly. Yeah. It wasn't having another sense. It was that he was becoming blind, if you will, to a sense that was there waiting all the time. So, so that's the challenge is overcoming 50 years of propaganda. Mm. But the good news I think, is that what it means is the path is very clear. Once we hit a certain critical mass, the tide will turn. And someone says to me, well, what if the big shoe companies copy what you're doing? I'll go, great, I won. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to change the world. Yeah. And if other people jump on board to help make that happen, I could not be happier. Yeah. Similar, again, I don't know behind the scenes if it's as similar to you or not, but similar at least in, uh, in talk is like Tesla, where... <laughs> What if other, what if Ford, what if, you know, what if they all take on, good. I wish everybody would be driving electric vehicles. You know, that's, that at least has been his sentiment uh, outwardly. It sounds very similar. Yeah. And Tesla, uh, of course, has this brand loyalty that no matter what the other companies do, people, there will be a lot of people who are always going to be responsive to them and their story because yeah. they took that first step. And yeah. I'm hoping and expecting that we'll see the same kind of effect. Yeah. Just a side note, I thought this was so cool. My, one of my best friends, his uncle, uh, just went up in a space in a SpaceX 
uh, rocket Saturday morning. They drove down to Cape Canaveral to see it. Oh, man. So uh, not his first time. He's an actual, you know, he was with NASA as an astronaut for a while, but his career got and his passions got to be reignited with companies like SpaceX that are still sending people yeah. up. And he got to go yesterday and their family got to drive down and watch it live. And oh, uh, it's just amazing. It's just amazing stuff that the type of people like you out there who are innovating, thinking differently. Uh, but you're right. We have to break that that kind of cognitive bias, that confirmation bias even, yeah. that we all fall into. Absolutely. Where we're conveniently blind to things that disprove our already held beliefs, and we are looking for evidence to withhold the same belief we already have. It happens all the time. It happens in totally. fights we have with partners. It happens with business ideas all the time. And Again, it sounds like, it's how we're wired. This is the right. thing that we need to realize is that we are built to do those things. Right. It's not a, it's not a glitch. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Yeah. And it's you've an efficiency work with thing. Feature. And interestingly, you know, we're now at a time where there's never been a better time to work with that feature or to deal with it, even though it's difficult because yeah. there's never been a better time to be able to reach out to the people who are most amenable to your story rather than just hearing that loop in their head over and over. Sure. Uh, you know, what you can do with online marketing it's unprecedented. You used to have to spend bajillions of dollars to just inculcate people into your story. And, uh, and like, I think about Stella Artois, I vividly remember when they were trying to break into the U S market and you could see they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising and hundreds of millions of dollars seeding the product by just giving it away practically to bars and restaurants so that people could go, Oh, you know, I'll give that a shot. And then they found out it was a good beer. I mean, they've been doing it in Europe for a long time, yeah. but that's how they had to do it pre-internet was just spend a huge amount of money and frankly, still cross your fingers. Now you can kind of test the waters pretty quick and cheap in a way that's just never been possible. Eh, well, kind of possible. You used to be able to do that with direct response advertising. You pay for a single full page ad. You see how many people respond before you even created the product. And if they respond, then you make yeah. the product. And if they don't, then you know you had a bad idea. Well, tell me this. You know, even from listening to your story, it makes sense to me that show me would be more effective than tell me, right? So if, if you can show me, if I can put those actual shoes on and I can walk outside, immediately yeah. it's challenging It's challenging my beliefs and my thoughts versus just tell me. Correct. You have to say in a thousand words what you could do in one moment if you just show me. In digital, you know, dig, like you're talking about with marketing and online, it, how do you do – like, How do it's you – yeah, hybrid. talk to me about that. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do – like. For us, as we grew, we frankly didn't have as much money for the kind of marketing that I would like to do because we were growing so quickly. We needed all that money for next year's inventory, and sure. we never had enough inventory. We were never able to buy enough to match the growth. But um, so the best thing would be just finding ways of just getting shoes on people's feet. And we're still cracking the code on that, to be honest. Um, in lieu of that, what you do digitally is you can tell the story. You can get user-generated content. You can get things that are people telling their authentic story of how they uh, maybe were doubtful or were curious or had whatever problem they had or read Born to Run and decided to give it a whirl and here's what happened. And, and there's the whole, of course, sharing organically where people will just tell a story just and it doesn't show up as an ad anywhere, but it's just going to their Facebook friends or their Insta friends or whatever it is. So that's been uh, the biggest thing that's been super, super helpful. And actually we have a joke. I always say to people, um, don't buy zero shoes if you don't like strangers, because you will be stopped on the street by someone either saying, Ooh, are those zero shoes from Shark Tank? Or just saying, Ooh, what are those? And mm. if you don't want to talk to them, you will be hard pressed to deal with reality. Have you, have you found that having 
like actual either pop-ups or miniature stores in, in variety of locations has been helpful for people to be able to try before they buy? Yeah, well, the, yes and no. Um, the yes part is yes, because every time we've done something like that, it's been successful. The no part is that we're not, we haven't really been expanding that because the human cost of doing that, what it takes to manage a pop-up shop or a store within a store uh, is, it's very capital and human intention. Sure. And it's not where we're going to see the biggest bang for the buck. Hmm. So we're very attentive to what's going to, how to prioritize our spend. So that's part of the plan. Um, we're really lucky, actually. We are now working with a private equity partner who has a one of their portfolio companies. Uh, basically, they mostly sell, well, almost exclusively sell winter products. And during the summer, most of their stores close. We did a test with them. And we had a store within a store during the summer in some of the mountains, mountain shop, mountain towns in Colorado and did really well. Again, not massive, but well enough to expand on that and to see that that's definitely somewhere that we can grow and we can do it profitably. What we've been doing in lieu of that is building out the wholesale business. So we're in all 170 REI stores, not hmm. with every product, not the entire product line, of course, but, uh, but building the wholesale business is a way that we've been doing that. And in Europe, same idea. Uh, the wholesale business, we're opening uh, zeroshoes.eu on November 11th, it seems, fingers crossed. And we know that's going to do well in large part by the number of EU customers we've already had to our us-based.com site and because of how well European wholesale has been growing. So the wholesale is still a piece of the puzzle for that exact reason. People can come in and yeah. experience the product first. You know, if, if we had a concierge program where we would send you every style we have in the three possible sizes that might fit you. We show up at your door, we let you try them on, we take away the things that you don't like. Most people would still rather go to a store and try other things at the same time, really get a different experience, not feel pressured. So wholesale is uh, um, gonna be a significant part of our growth moving forward. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, what I was in initially thinking about is a store that I've been to called Bonobos. Are you familiar with Bonobos? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I um, Quick funny story about Bonobos. <clears throat> when, I, when I saw what they were doing, the shoe that we had, that first casual shoe, the Hana, uh, was a perfect shoe for them. And so I went to an event knowing that Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, was going to be there wearing a pair of his pants to show it's like, hey, look how well my shoes go with your pants. And he was very nice to me. We had a great conversation, but he was kind of dismissive of the whole idea of, hey, we should do something together. And it was, I only found out after the fact that it was because at that time he was in negotiations to sell the business to Walmart. So ah. he had no incentive to do anything. Ah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that I was more whole thinking idea... about it from a model because it was, right. it was interesting to me going in, trying things on. I got fitted. I tried yep. different versions of their shirts or their suits or whatever. And I remember trying to buy something there. I was like, can I just take this home? And they're like, we don't no. sell anything here. Well, here's the, here's the twist. Uh, that business model was enabled by the $17.6 million that Nordstrom gave them. Mm. So if we had a big chunk of money designed to create a showroom slash store, uh, we know that's a model that can work because we've done it whenever we go to trade shows, consumer facing trade shows, yeah. or whenever we go to a street fair or any place where we have the ability to have people try it on and sell, we do really well. So we know that model can work. We just have to just build that into cost. our plans. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Just thinking out loud. It's just, it's, again, yours is such an interesting one. That's like, you got to try it. How can we, what are the different yeah. ways to, to, to try it so that more people uh, get that experience and then pass along to their friends at the gym and, 
you know, all you, that you kind want, of thing. You, you want to hear, you want to hear the, the version that would be most entertaining that we definitely can't do. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I've been an internet marketer for Jesus, 30 years. Holy crap. I'm old. Uh, so there's a thing that, uh, that internet marketers do with info products, which is try before you buy. Mm-hmm. So just, we'll send it to you. Maybe you pay for shipping. Maybe you don't, but just, if you like it, great. We'll charge your card in 30 days. If you don't just send it back or tell us you don't like it. Yeah. If we could do that kind of try before you buy and float the cash and float the fact that many people's credit cards will change and we'll never be able to find them again and all the other problems that come with that, uh, that would be outrageous. Oh yeah. But it's also most likely the only way to do that is if you had a few million dollars to blow doing it, because I think, I think actually we'd probably make it back on the lifetime value of a customer because we have people buy so many different versions of our shoes or they buy for the rest of their family after they get into what we're doing, it would probably work in the long term, but yep. we would need You'd millions to... of dollars in the short term to cover yeah. the expense of doing that. Yeah. It sounds like both of that store model and that online idea, you just have to survive that initial period where it's yeah. more costing you than it is making you until it eventually yeah. flips and it's making you more than it's costing you. Cause what, I just did that this week. I wanted to buy some new jeans. I was so tired of looking around places. I was like, I'm pretty sure I remember I liking the Levi's 511s went on Amazon had an option where it said, try before you buy. I was like, perfect. Clicked that yeah. button. They sent it to me. Actually didn't fit the way I wanted to. Put it right back in, sending it back to them. And I'm going to keep looking and keep yeah. shopping. But it was like, man, if you could do that with shoes, uh, logistically, well, if you get away with it, that would be well, amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, people kind of do. They use Amazon as a try before you buy now. Because like the re- return and exchange rate on Amazon is higher than it is direct with our store uh, or our, our .com uh, store. So but that's not what it's designed to be. It's just, that's what people do. Yeah. Uh, But to actually make that a campaign of about um, we're so confident we'll send them to you. All you do is pay 695 for shipping. And if you like them, we'll charge you the rest of money 30 days later. Uh, It's, I can't think of anything ballsier and more expensive, no matter, even if it goes well, crazy expensive just to float the cash, crazy expensive. Absolutely. And just that delay it puts in the, and the income stream Changes of waiting everything. 30 days and all, all yes. stuff's going out, but you're not getting paid on it for a while. Yeah. That would be complicated. Yeah. <laughs> It'll make my CFO's head explode. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, man, I want one more question before we get into Uh-oh. lightning rounds. All right. Um, it, it was actually very similar to the question you asked me before we got started after, you know, I told you we've interviewed 200 something people and you said, what surprised you most? And I'm curious for you, not just with Zero Shoes, but like you said, you've been in internet marketing. You've been a probably involved in several different businesses over the last 30 years. What has surprised you most about business, about building business? However you want to think about that, just in your experience of being in the world of business and internet marketing and zero shoes, what's something that comes to mind that surprised you most? Huh. Um, since I don't, didn't really have a lot of expectations, I didn't have anything that would shatter an expectation or make me just go, what? Um, so I don't know. I think what popped into my mind is just, um, I'll say this in a weird way. So I've been an individual sport athlete my whole life. That's all I've ever done. I don't know if the particular psychological thing I'm about to mention is unique to individual sport athletes or not. But my fundamental view of the world is that the best man wins, the best thing wins. And I have been repeatedly uh, shown that that naive, optimistic viewpoint is far from true when it comes to business. Mm. And what surprises me is the extent to which companies will go out of their way to not do what's the right thing or what's best for their consumers 
because it would be admitting that they're mistaken or admitting that they've been wrong. I mean, look, in, in the footwear world, <clears throat> you know, the boy who cried wolf, the story, the villagers eventually get smart when the boy cries wolf and they stop showing up. In the performance footwear world, every couple of years, there's some new form of cushioning, some new form of protection. It has never been proven to be any better than what was out there before, which has never been proven to be any better than doing nothing, than having mm. none of that. And yet every time they come out with one of these new stories, A, the villagers run to the running shoe store to buy the new thing. And B, the shoe companies never say, by the way, sorry about that crap we've been selling before. We just found out it was horrible. Right. They always say, right. here's the new thing, but never admit that the old thing was crap. So, which it was demonstrably. So that's surprising to me, uh, both the kinds of things they do to, dis to mm, pull the rug out from underneath something true that another company is doing and to not take the appropriate steps to do the right thing, to do the right thing to their customers. I find it morally repugnant when people make money by lying to other people. And this industry is full of um, whatever the noun version of morally repugnant is. Yeah. It makes me think of, uh, what is his name? Oh, uh, man, I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. It's the end of a Monday. Um, he wrote, uh, he, he's in charge of the Instagram account, Daily Stoics. He wrote The Obstacles of the Way. Ryan oh. Holiday. Ryan yes. Holiday. Yeah, I've had, I've had some great conversations with Ryan. His first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, yeah. I thought is so telling of the industry he was a part of before. Oh, no, no, no. More than that. That book, if, and people have to read it, that book um, laid out what is so obvious to people, but they don't realize the repercussions, which is on the internet, clicks drive revenue, outrage drives clicks. Yeah. And so uh, what we're seeing in the, ever since he wrote that book is the repercussion of that. Mm -hmm. And you, leave, you've, you finish reading that book thinking there will never be another civil conversation in the world as long as the internet exists in the form that it currently does. And now you're seeing that that, his, that, that prediction could not have been more prescient and um, upsetting. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. We find ourselves in a pickle. Hopefully, hopefully the best of us will all emerge. You know, the better of our, the better parts of our beings will emerge and we'll find our way through this, right? Oh, you optimist, you. I, <laughs> I have to be. I, I, look, I, I, hope, I hope you're right. The reason that I'm less than optimistic is that, um, again, if you think about how we bond with each other, it's through things like fear and outrage because yeah. that's what kept us alive when we were just becoming humans. And that's how what we respond to more than we respond. Even if we see something that is about loving altruistic, helping other people, um, that can get a lot of clicks, but it doesn't necessarily move people the same way that outrage and fear does. And, and totally. unfortunately, people are literally capitalizing on that now. And to the extent that they can continue to capitalize on it is the extent to which they're going to keep doing it. So fingers yeah. crossed that you're right. I'm locally optimistic. Individuals, I, I'm greatly optimistic about individuals. Uh, I'm globally pessimistic. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could be swayed depending on the day on which way I go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will say you asked me this question. This answer is now emerging. What stuck out to me most. There have been several times like today that in the interviews I'm having where someone is combating something bad in the world. Mm. And that has made me so hopeful. Like I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone who is creating, um, Who's, who's using like the decentralized network of, uh, of like crypto, yeah. uh, not necessarily in the currency, but using it for like medical so that people oh, will have transparency yeah. 
of their and own their medical records and be able to use it in more fair ways and or someone who's doing cybersecurity because yeah. people are getting ripped off and whatever and that's actually been slowly building my hope that I hear really brilliant people out there that are actually combating whatever the evil is whatever the uh, injustice is you know, you know I mean, I, I get that. And I think there's some things in there where you're on the money and there's some where you're not on the money. And I use that phrase semi-intentionally because it's about the money. It's, it's always easier to be evil and rip somebody off than to do something new. So I'll tell you, I don't know if I want to say this or not. Um, uh, we've been subject to certain kinds of fraud lately mm. that I didn't even know existed. And, it, and I, we half jokingly say, uh, congratulations, we're now big enough that people are doing that kind of fraud using our brand. And it, it's, uh, and people say, I can't believe other, I can't believe that other people are doing that. I go, I can totally believe it. It's way easier to find a way to steal credit cards than it is to build a real business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, don't, don't quit on me. <laughs> don't quit well, on me. Hey, look, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not, I'm not going to, for a couple of reasons. One that I think is going to come up when you ask me one of your lightning round questions, but the yeah. other is, is um, my wife and I are in this very interesting situation where if this continues to go well, as we expect it will, we may end up with a whole bunch of money. And I don't care about the money. I care about what that will allow us to do. Yes. So the fact that you know, we might be able to fund a whole micro loan program, the, yep. the fact that we might be able to fund a scholarship program, the fact that we can, you know, the idea of things that we can do, because we we've lived on nominal amounts of cash very happily, and we're very clear that more after a very low threshold does not change things much. Yeah, it runs um, in safety and security. It doesn't do much. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I talked to a bunch of friends of mine who made many, many, many millions or billions of dollars very quickly. And I said, what'd you do when you got all the money? They said, bought a house, bought a car. I said, anything else? They went, nope, that was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, the ones who lived well, I know people who've, who've blown it all because they sure. were crazy. But the ones who've handled it well, bought a house, bought a car, end of story. So, but then what do you do with all the rest? And- I know, because I used to deal with high net worth individuals who were looking for something to do with their money. The biggest challenge is what can we do where we can see a demonstrable effect from yeah. having put this money out? And now people know some of those answers, microloans, scholarships. Yeah. So yeah. That'd be, well, okay. That'd be Let fun. me give you an example. Two of my guests thinking similar to you that gives me hope for humanity. So okay. one was a former professor, like a psych professor or something at the University of Boulder, Colorado, decided he had enough of talking about philosophy and wanted to go out and be like build something so he actually built pop sockets right the the thing I, that you put I, on the back I, of the phone i know them well made a bunch a bunch of money and he said what i'm most excited about is what this money can do he said i dream every day about i think he called it either a perpetual joy or perpetual goodness um building some kind of perpetual goodness thing in the world where he could use like the profits of this huge yeah. inane. I mean, literally it's just a thing you put on the back of a phone. He's like, I'm not pumped about that. I'm yeah. pumped about what I can do with this in the world. Yeah. Second is another guy, uh, uh, Justin Mecklenburg out of Neo Insulation. He's been in oil and gas for a long time and he found that there was just an old way of insulating you know, machinery that they use for oil and gas. And so he came up with a new way of insulating it. It's making tons of money. I said, what do you want to do, man? Like, what do you care about? He said, I'm going to get really rich. I said, oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't expect, like, he's such a quality. I was like, oh, interesting. Like, what's behind that? He said, I'll tell you exactly what's behind that. He said, when my first child was born, uh, he had some complications, and it got real scary for a long time. And we had to go to a hospital where they performed a very specific surgery on him that we didn't know I was going to go, but it went well. He's doing fine now. 
He said, I'll never forget when I was walking aimlessly just to check out. Like, what do I owe you? How much is it going to be? They looked at him and said, sir, you're at St. Jude's. You don't owe us anything. And he said, what? And he said, St. Jude's takes care of all of this, so you don't have to think about anything but your child. And he said, from that moment, he thought, I'm going to make so much money one day that I'm going to build 10 of whatever the next of this is. I'm going to, whether it's a hospital or a microloan, like, I want to transfer the feeling I had in that moment of someone saying, you don't owe us anything. And he's like, that's why I want to be wealthy, so I can build whatever the next St. Jude's is. And I was like, whoa. And then I gave that talk at a conference, and everyone starts cheering. And I'm like, oh, that was a big reaction. I found out afterwards what I'd missed earlier in the conference was everything was being donated to St. Jude's. <laughs> at this place and i had missed that whole part i came in late for my flight came in told oh, that story great. and they're like that was the best setup for giving to saint jude's we've ever had and i was like i didn't even know you know but i'm like man as long as people still exist like that in the world we got a chance a friend of mine one of my best friends from junior high and high school someone i talked to yesterday uh he for a while was running a big charitable organization and i i'm gonna i'm telling the story sort of backwards he told me something that i found shocking he said um, if you donated $1,000 to our organization, you'd be in the top one-tenth of 1% 1 of all donors, which I thought was horrible. It's like, yeah. that's a small amount of money to be that big. Now, there's people who are donating many, 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 many millions. So the curve is a little skewed. But nonetheless, I thought that was horrible. Like um, we had, we got this in Boulder, we got this beautiful building donated by our sister city in Tajikistan. It's this gorgeous tea house. And we had done nothing in return so someone came up with the idea of, of, of creating a cyber cafe there. So my wife and I donated $1,000 thinking, oh, you know, it's only going to take like 200 more people until it's done. And it took forever for Boulder's rich and guilty to finally come around and, you know, donate enough money. And, and we were stunned because, you know, $1,000 is not a lot of money. I mean, once you understand, I guess the, the value of the word enough, once mm. you know what enough means. So Lane and I, we were effectively retired from 2000 to 2009 on some investing I'd done, businesses that were just throwing off some cash, et cetera. And we were taking um, at least $1,000 a month and donating it to things because we didn't need the money. Sure, we could have spent it on something, but it was more than enough. Mm. And there was nothing more fun than finding places to donate 500 or 1,000 bucks. I remember um, we were at a, in a parking lot and they had the Humane Society puppies and kitties wagon. And yeah. so after we're done playing with the puppies and the kitties, we said, can I, can I give you a donation? And they said, yeah, yes. And so I, there was $500 left in that month's kitty for donating. So I wrote a check for $500, uh, folded it up and handed it to the guy. And after we left the, the, the RV or whatever you call it, the door closes behind us. We get about two steps and we hear, oh my God. <laughs> and you know, and we, we changed someone's life. And it was, and we did that over and over and it's super, super fun. Mm. So finding ways to do that, um, you know, big thumbs up for people. Absolutely. Sorry, I lost you just there for a second on the internet connection. Um, while we're oh, while we're shouting out amazing projects like yours and other people, there's another one that's always been close to my heart. Have you ever heard of uh, Charity Water? No. Scott Harrison. You need mm -hmm. to check out Scott Harrison and his story. I've got his his book back behind me over there, Thirst. Um, but he was similar to Ryan Holiday. You know, someone that was like, I was not. The best person for a while and uh he found himself <laughs> em he found himself empty and trying to figure out what to do with himself and so he was a nightclub promoter a very very good 
promoter, had the Rolodex of everybody in New York and was just creating parties all over. He, I think he said he woke up in Ibiza uh, being like, what the hell am I doing with my life, you know? And uh, anyways, he said the funniest thing, he's like, I wasn't really religious, but I had religious ideas in my head. And I thought, man, if I've wasted 30 years, he was 30 at the time, I should at least tie three of them back to figure out what the hell I'm going to do for this planet. So he gave himself three years to, like, to, to do something that would be for somebody else's benefit, not his own. He ended up like on a medical ship somewhere just taking pictures. He's like, I can take pictures and photograph your work and let it be known. And he was watching all these people come onto the boat with these huge growths on their face and different things. And he asked the doctors, like, what's the deal? And they said, it's water. This problem would go away if they had clean yeah. water. All of yeah. this is, is the disease. You know, Whatever they're drinking in is causing these growths and all that kind of stuff. It's the water. So he's like, well, hell, I can figure something out. I got a lot of rich people in my Rolodex. So long story short, he created Charity Water, and he said it almost went nowhere because every time he asked people to give, they'd be like, to what? How do I know, it's go How do I know where it's going? How yeah. do I know what it's being used for? And that was the aha for him was he had to remove the distrust and yeah. actually make the connection to this is exactly where your money went. And so what was brilliant, I'm ruining some of this, I'm telling some of the story, but he created two different funds totally separate, totally different bank accounts. If you want to give towards the charity water, you give here, we show you what well project it's associated with, the coordinates, we'll give you updates, all that kind of stuff. If you want to give to the infrastructure of the business, nice, keeping the lights on, paying the staff that goes and, and builds whatever, the copy, the marketing budget, that's right. a separate thing. And he, and so he's got a, you know, a faithful small army of rich people that understand building a business and they're like, we're giving to the organization, the yeah. thing that's letting you hire, that's praying for, paying for the printer, all that kind of stuff. And then people like me can give straight to you know, Charity Water and know exactly where it's going, and it's, it's blown up because of it. It's, it's unbelievable. We, we, since day one, have been donating to the Tarumara Children's Hospital Fund. So Born to Run is about the Tarumara Indians, yep. how they run long distances and sandals made from scraps of tire and some leather. And since that was part of our inspiration, we wanted to give back. In fact, we, in the early days, we had fantasies of going down to the Copper Canyon in Mexico to hang out with the Tarumara. And we've been so busy that we haven't had time, but we've been su supporting the Tarumara Children's Hospital Fund who provides education, food, water. The Tarumara are having a hard time with drought and yep. uh, lack of education, lack of medical care, drug cartels coming in, et cetera. The wars, and, yeah. Yeah, and because the TCHF is a, I believe Jesuit, but don't hold me to it. I'm always horrible at this. Suffice it to say, uh, all the people who work for them are donating their time. So like 99% of our wow. money is going down into the Copper Canyon to help the Tarumara. And that's the only way we would do it. Um, so, but of course, you know, doing, doing it the way you just described of, uh, of these two different entities, the one that supports the one that you like and the yeah. one that you like supporting the other one. Uh, that's a brilliant idea to separate that because there are a lot of a lot of charitable organizations who spend a lot of money on operations and salaries for the people working for them yeah, and, uh, and are not as transparent as they need to be. Yeah. He had one of the cool stories in business for me. I don't know, you know, you could pull it apart if you want to pessimistically, but at least it was at least neat. He, his idea got challenged mm. when there were millions of dollars in the funds to building wells and, and there was almost run out of money. Yeah. for the overhead of the business. Yeah. And even internally, people were telling him, just take a little bit out of here, put it over here, just even for a few months to keep the lights on and we can repay it. And he was having this crisis of conscience because he's like, no, the whole idea is that yes. I would never move money from here to here and this is failing. 
And it was like the day of they were going to, you know, bounce their checks for their employees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he had a guy come in and he was supposed to be pitching him on whatever. And he's like, what's really going on? And he just told him, you know, told him his heart. Told him, he's like, this might go under. My idea is failing. And the guy called him back like six hours later and said, hey, man, check your bank account. There should be <laughs> there should be three million dollars on its way hitting your bank account any minute now. And he was like, dude, I was so close to sacrificing the very heart of what I was trying to do and the name of what I was trying to do. And in that moment, I realized not to give up, like even at the very end, like don't, don't, you know, don't give up on those values. Right. We have, we have on two occasions that I can think of send an email to our list saying, um, we got a problem and we could really use your help. The one was at COVID. Like mm. after, you know, March 14th, when we watched revenue drop by 75%, it was like, ah, um, and we wanted to make sure we didn't want to fire anybody. We wanted to keep everybody working. We, we had large wholesale orders get canceled. And we had, like everyone, didn't know what was going to happen in the universe. And we said, so look, um, we're going to take this one product that this one, this wholesale account was supposed to take a whole lot of, <clears throat> and we have to get rid of it. Uh, because if we can't, we, if we don't, we can't improve it for next year. Mm. And so... Um, we really need your help. We want to keep everybody employed. So we're going to sell it at a discount. But just so you know, here's why we're doing it. It's for for help. And holy moly, man. I mean, if if you have that kind of relationship with your customers where you, you're transparent and yep. you can just say, we're in a jam. We help. Yeah. People, people will help. Yeah. You know, again, locally, very optimistic. Globally, yeah. not so much. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. I love it. All right. I I told you we were almost done. I want to I really want to respect okay. your time. Okay. I've Let's just been it. having so much fun with you. Uh, let me give you these five lightning round questions. I will not take us down detours. I'll let you just answer the question. We got five questions for you. Question number one. If you could ingrain just one message, almost like a billboard, inside of your whole organization, what would that message be? That's interesting. Um you know, the way we run our company, uh, we make it very clear to everyone, and so this is the message, is that everybody in the company, from customer service and warehouse to the C-level, and I don't even like describing it that way because it sounds like it's vertical, but that's horizontal for us. Everyone is necessary for us to achieve our goals, and we want to know what it is from your perspective about what we do so we can do it better and so that we can help you have fun in the process. Hmm. Love it. All right, question number two. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst advice? Boy, oh boy. Um, the best advice, it's not even advice. I can't think of advice either way, because if someone says something that we agree with, we already knew it. And if they say something we don't agree with, we ignore it. So um, so I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. But, uh, oh, you know, I have two. Uh, the best is actually just the reassurance that we got. When we brought on our private equity partners, they, they, basically, they did something unusual for private equity. They said, we trust you to run this business the way you see fit. Mm. Um, I mean, that was huge. So the best advice was um, keep going. Yeah. And the worst actually was not advice, but it's what happens pretty much every time someone contacts me to get money for some marketing initiative where they think they know better than us and do better than us, despite the fact they don't even know what we do um, or our existing partners, and they won't put their money where their mouth is to test it. I say this to people all the time. It's like, you know, I need to split test you against the people we're already doing. And if it doesn't work, I need my money back. And they go, well, we can't do that. I go, of course you could. If you really believed in yourself, the way mm. you're trying to make me believe in you, you could, but you won't. 
So um, I only work with people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is. And worst advice is always, when, whenever someone says best practices, I know it's gonna be bad advice because best practices don't work for everybody. And we've yeah. repeatedly proven many best practices to not be best for us. Love it. All right, question number three. What currently causes you the most stress or worry as the leader of your organization? Uh, not having, you know, for me, velocity is really important because velocity cures many ills and not just because I'm a sprinter, <laughs> but um, my concern is that we won't have either the cash resources or the velocity to weather the storm if some multi-billion dollar company decides to come after us for some completely specious thing that we yeah. then have to deal with. Yeah. Um, something that I can't even imagine. That, that's the thing is I don't, the things that I don't know that I don't know, that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah. Worried about one of the, the shoe giants with their thick soles trying to step on you. Um, <laughs> Metaphorically. Like Metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Question number four. What is your, we use this phrase, however you like to think about, big, hairy, audacious goal, which somebody pointed out actually does sound gross. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a gross way of saying it. What, what is the exciting goal you have for this company for the future? Um, Harvard's Dr. Irene Davis said to me, <clears throat> if we got kids just wearing your shoes, in 20 years, we wouldn't be treating adults for the billions of dollars of foot, ankle, hip, knee, et cetera, problems they currently have. Wow. Um, we see a similar thing with where balance is an issue that causes many people to die every year, like my father did six years ago, tripped, fell down, broke his hip and died. Um, uh, we see the number of things for which natural movement seems to be, and there's some research demonstrating that it is a life-changing thing. We're just trying to change the world. We're trying to make people happier and healthier feet first. And every day we hear from people who tell us that, that by getting out of big, thick, padded motion control shoes, that's happened for them. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Love it, man. On board for that. All right. Question number five. This is kind of a fun, creative question for you. Uh -oh. If you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past, but the rule is you're not there to necessarily change anything. You get to pass a message along to that younger version of yourself. How much younger? I'm about to ask, when would you go back? And what message would you pass along to that younger version of you? <laughs> um, uh, he'd be 15, and I'd say, uh, when you get out of college, get a government job with a pension. <laughs> that is not what you would say. I totally would. He what? wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't listen to me, but, he, but totally. Look, <laughs> I have friends who got government jobs with pensions. First of all, you know, I never had a job, so I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But I have friends who had government jobs that were very interesting and creative, and they have and and during their careers, you know, they like stopped work at five o'clock. They had weekends off. They got paid vacations. They had benefits. That sounds really cool. I've never had any of those. And then, you know, when they turned anywhere between fifty and sixty-five, because some retired early and some retired later, uh, that you know, one of one of my training partners retired early. She doesn't know how to spend the money. And uh, she's having a fine, fine time. So I can imagine that if I could have talked my 15-year-old self into that idea, it would have made certain aspects of my life uh, much more, much simpler. But he, he wouldn't have listened to me because you know, uh, he wouldn't have believed I came from the future anyway. <laughs> if, if the multiverse is real and there are millions upon millions, infinite versions of you in other <laughs> lifetimes, I can't imagine that one of them is happy in a government job. I'm just you know going to put that out you, there. You know, I've, got a, I've got a friend who bird dogs for a venture capitalist company. And I said, when you're looking to buy a company, what do you look for? He goes, we want a CEO who can't hold a job. 
I said, why? He goes, because we're going to want to kick them out in a year to two years anyway, because we will have turned it into some different kind of company. I said, where do you see me on the scale of, you know, not holding a job? He goes, dude, you're not even on the scale. So, <laughs> um, so you may be right, but I can't think of, I mean, I can't think of any advice that I would have ever listened to uh, yeah. that would have been meaningful. Um, I've all, you know, the number of things that I've done where people said, well, that's a horrible idea that turned out to be awesome is very high and probably vice versa, but who likes to think about those? I love it. Well, you definitely win for most unique answer. Uh, I have not heard that one yet, especially when the guest I'm listening to would never want to do that job as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, then my, my mission here is complete. <laughs> Stephen, thank you for making it here today, for giving me, you've given us in the audience so much of your time, your thoughts, your heart, your wisdom, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, please, don't give up on us as a world. Keep hoping on us locally, okay? <laughs> well, if anybody got anything out of what I said, they clearly misunderstood me. So, uh, so no, this has been a total, total pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.